This week I wanted to talk, this is like a gap week, a transition week between uh, series. So we did the what if it's true, what if the gospel is true, it changes everything. That was kind of our launch topic. And uh, next week we'll be moving into uh, something that's a little more, little more paradigmatic of how we'll do preaching here at Sedaris, which is we're going to walk through a book of the Bible. I won't tell you what book because I want you to come back next week. It's not a long one, so we won't be, be in it for years or years or anything like that. It's a nice letter. It's one of the epistles, and we're going to go through it because we believe that uh, the Bible is the Word of God, and if you just kind of pick and choose things all the time, you're going to miss out something God wants to tell you. So we're going to go through it um, verse by verse, chunk by chunk. That's where we're going. But I wanted to do this one sort of gap sermon to kind of transition us from the launch uh, into our life together. And so I thought, you know, most of you probably don't know what Sedaris means, which is the name of our church, and so I said, well, why don't we talk about Sedaris? Uh, I think it'd be good, because people might ask you where, where do you go to church, or what's your church, and uh, one of the things that I hope is that you don't just say, I go to church, but my church is, and then you can explain to them what Sedaris means, because they're going to look at you with a blank face, and they'd be like, what's that? Does that sound like fun to figure out what this means? So, I've been thinking about it a lot, too, because... What's in the name? Uh, you may or may not have heard, but Allie and I, that's my wife, we're having a baby, and so we've been trying to figure out names. Now, we had a girl's name picked out before we ever got pregnant, but it turns out we're having a boy. So we got to figure out <laughs> a boy's name, and this has been a lot harder for us. And so we've been thinking a lot about uh, what's in the name, and, you know, the weight of it has kind of started to, you know, I'm feeling it now. May 8th is the due date. I'm feeling the weight of picking a name for my son, and uh, I realize a name is very important. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by that, because names uh, in the Bible are very important. I think names are important to God, and one of the things we see again and again is that God asks us, as human beings created in his image, to name things. So we see in the garden, after God's created everything, and he creates man and woman, he, he tells Adam, the man, he says, go ahead and, and name, name all the animals. And so he gives us the task of naming. We continue to do that as, as we name our children and our pets and those sorts of things. What we also see happening is God changes names. So if you have a particular name, God can actually come and change your name because maybe there's been a huge transition in your life. So we see that happen with Jacob. God changes his name to Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. And that, of course, becomes the name of God's people, the Israelites. What we also see is God tells uh, specific people at certain times to name uh, their children things. So uh, God tells Mary and Joseph to name their son Jesus. And he explains there's meaning behind the name. Jesus means Yahweh saves. So there's meaning behind names. So I believe that God has given us this name for our church, Sedaris, and so I want to explain a little bit of uh, why I think he's given us this name, and then what I want to ask is, can we live up to the name that we've been given? So, to explain Sedaris, I've got to tell you a little bit of my story. Many of you have heard my story, some of you haven't, so bear with me uh, if this is a broken record. Uh, March 2007, the eight-year anniversary of this is coming up. But my older sister, Kim, was killed in a bicycling accident. My whole family was vacationing in, in Palm Desert, California. I was in Dallas, where I was living at the time, and I got a phone call from my dad. I was at a St. Patrick's Day parade 
with some friends and we happened to be in a sports bar. Once, twice, three times the phone rang. I didn't pick up and then finally I walked outside. I was wondering what's going on, why so many calls. I don't remember much of what he said. I'm not sure if he said much. All I remember is that he said, Kim's dead. She's been hit by a truck. My sister was killed uh, on contact, and that phone call changed my life. Uh, Right after I got the call and I hung up, I walked into the back alley behind uh, the bar, and I just started crying no. I just, again and again, no, no, this can't, this can't be. And I was weeping and sobbing, as you might imagine. For about 20 minutes, I don't know exactly how long. That's all I did. I just cried out no. And then exhausted in every way, physically, emotionally, spiritually, I stumbled to the ground, sat, leaned up against a chain-link fence. And uh, in that moment, can only be described as a miracle, uh, That confusion, hysteria, was wiped clean, and I had a kind of clarity that I've I've never experienced before. I never experienced it before then, and I haven't since. And in that moment of clarity, I received a message delivered to me, believed by the Spirit of God, from my sister, and she had something she wanted me to ask uh, those that she loved, particularly her friends. And that was, ask them to consider uh, ask them to consider Jesus, first and foremost, what they believe about him, what they believe about God, and ask him not to wait. That was the gist of the message. And this one word, consider, really uh, stuck out. Why this word, consider? And so the week went by and the message replayed in my head. I, t- I told no one of what had happened to me. Uh, I just said, I need to speak at Kim's memorial And I got up and I delivered the message. There was maybe 1,500 people at Kim's service. She was one of the most magnetic people that you could ever meet. And I hope that many of you get to meet her one day. I believe that many of you will. Uh, But she was magnetic. She had that kind of personality that um, could fill a room with 1,500 people. And... uh, I delivered a message, and it was a powerful experience. And then time and time again, God has asked me to continue to deliver that message, ask them to consider Jesus. And so that's what I've done. That's a huge part of what we are as a church. That's why we're here as a church, because I want people to be able to consider who Jesus is. So that was the message that I got. And so this word consider became very, very important. And we started a ministry after Kim's death, Uh, a foundation and we had these benefit concerts called the consider concerts where we would ask people to consider and of course we'd ask them to consider others uh, through participating in her foundation and then of course to consider uh, Jesus as well and uh, what was very important in this whole process of figuring out what my calling was to ask people to consider was the night before Kim's memorial in my humanity I thought I could come up with a better word than consider. I thought that was a little bit soft. What about a nice, strong word like decide or else? Something like that. That's kind of what I was thinking. But in God's grace, he let me down easy, and I went online and looked up uh, the word consider. What did it mean to think about in order to make a decision? That's what consider means. But more importantly, uh, 
The word consider comes from a Latin word, which comes from two Latin roots, com, which means with, and sideris, which means heavenly body. And when I saw that, that consider literally means with heavenly body, I stopped, I turned off the computer, and I said, okay, this is a special word. And so from that time uh, on, really for the next five years, I was focused um, on helping people to consider with their heavenly body in mind. I would call this the uh, individual aspect of uh, the word heavenly body. And so I'd say, uh, how do we help people think not only with their earthly, he- uh, earthly body in mind, but their heavenly body in mind? And, and, and if you're not a Christian, um, let me just explain why that's so important. Because as Christians, we believe that Jesus... Uh, died for our sin and then rose into a newness of life and he promises that we too will experience a resurrection like his and we will be given new heavenly bodies like his and so this idea is that this body that I have here that you know I don't know how old you are but as you go you'll start to feel that it's wasting away be like well this is the only body I got actually Christianity teaches us that's not the only body you got you got another one coming And it's one that's imperishable, it's one that's perfected, that's our new, resurrected, heavenly body. And so, the question is, if that's true, shouldn't that affect the way that I live and I think and I act here and now? And as I wrestled through that, that changed the way I saw the world, the way I spent my time, my energy, my money, because I said, wait a minute, if that's true, people got to know this. So that's the individual aspect, is that I have a body, and a heavenly body that's going to come, sideris, a heavenly body, and so I want to be thinking and acting with that in mind. Now, all of this was happening uh, when we felt like God was calling us to start a church to help people to consider. Now, as we were thinking about names and what to call the church, I really wanted to try to find a way to connect the Consider Project, with uh, the new church. And I realized one day, I mean, it really just happened like this. I was sitting on the couch, I still remember, I was like, oh my gosh, the church is a body as well. Because body is one of those weird words that it's both uh, a singular, right? I have a body, but it's also a collective plural. Um, For instance, you have a body of water, right? Or there's Um, a legislative body, a group of individuals organized for some purpose, a legislative body, Uh, or there's a body of evidence, which is a collection of evidence, right? So this this idea of body is not only a singular, but it's also a a plural. And what's interesting is that uh, Scripture talks about the church as the body of Christ. And so what I began to realize is that not only are we called to be a church Uh, where the individuals think in this way with their heavenly body, but we're also called to be a body, to be the collective of God's people, which Scripture calls the body of Christ. And the more I thought about it, I realized, well, what is the church? It's actually more of a heavenly collective than it is an earthly collective. Now, we meet here on earth, and, and the church is here on earth, but what we are is a glimpse into the community that is to come. And now, when I say heaven, I don't mean, you might have figured this, you might have figured this out from the first, uh, the first 
aspect of sideris, but I don't mean kind of the idea of floating in the clouds and jumping from cloud to cloud. That's not what Scripture talks about when it talks about heaven. It talks about that when Christ comes again, he'll remake everything, including our bodies, but he'll also resurrect all of creation. Everything will be made new. So it won't be such a different experience than our experience now, apart from the fact that the presence of sin is no longer here. And so uh, it's important when I say heavenly body to think about that. So the collective of the people of God gather together in the church to give, to give the rest of the world a glimpse into what community in heaven is like. Does that make sense? So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who um, is a great theologian and pastor who lived in Germany during World War II, uh, actually was executed for his work against Hitler and the Nazis. Um, he wrote a great book called Life Together. I highly recommend it if you're looking for a good read. But he talks about the Christian community. He talks about what's so special about the Christian community is that it's a heavenly fellowship. A heavenly fellowship. And that's the same aspect that I'm using. So Sideris, we are the church, the body of Christ, but we're a heavenly body because we represent the kingdom of God here on earth. This is, this is important to understand. This is why we've chosen the name. Now the third aspect of the word Sideris, which I think is important, is that its most natural meaning, if you were to just run across the Latin word in other Latin uh, writings, it just literally means the stars. So this is the way people would talk about the stars in antiquity. They would say the heavenly bodies. Now I'm okay with this as well because actually in Philippians chapter 2, Paul, the Apostle Paul, in his letter, talks about and tells Christians to be like the stars. He says, be like the stars. So why do we want to be like the stars? Well, stars are quite beautiful, right? Um, I would be like, I would like to be called like the stars. I think that's a good thing. No one ever, you know, sat out on a camping trip and looked up at the stars and, as Jimmy Fallon would say, uh, no one ever just looked at the stars and just was like, ew. <laughs> Nobody's ever done that. So what, what, what do stars do? Stars are awe-inspiring, right? Not ew-inspiring. So we look at the stars and we're like, man, that's beautiful. If you don't know what I'm referencing, just look it up. Jimmy Fallon, ew, okay? Uh, stars are beautiful. They grab our attention. They grab our eye. And, and one of the reasons they do that is because of the contrast, right? They're bright against a dark background. And so when Paul talks about we need to be like the stars, he's saying we should stand out in our city like the stars stand out in the night sky. Wouldn't that be a great thing if people said that about our church? That it stands out as a brilliant, magnificent, awe-inspiring uh, sight in the midst of of the city. So the stars, man, if we could be like the stars. So those are kind of the three aspects that I think are important to understanding Sideris and what it means. Now here's the question. If that's what God, if the name that he has given us is a high calling to give people a glimpse into the heavenly realm, into the, the way community works in the kingdom of God, 
if we are to be people who think not just with our earthly bodies, but with our heavenly bodies, with the man that's to come, not the man that is, if this is part of our calling, if we're supposed to be like the stars in the sky, how in the world do we live up to such a high calling? And the answer to that question is what we're going to be looking at today, which is family. Family. That's the way that we become everything that God is asking us to be. Family. You see, when, when the Bible, when Jesus, when the apostles talk about the church, they don't talk about it like an event that you attend. They don't talk about something to consume. They talk about it like family. Family. How is the church like family? I believe that the church is family. And I believe that that's what we're called to be. And I believe that's the only way that we're going to live up to our, our, our name, which is Sidera. So if you've got a Bible, grab it and turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew is the first gospel, first book of the New Testament. It was written by one of Jesus' disciples that traveled with him during his three-year ministry. And Matthew had firsthand knowledge, eyewitness to all that Jesus did and taught. There are Bibles, uh, if you don't have one, tucked underneath uh, near the ends. Grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible or you don't own a very good Bible, take one of those with you. That's a gift from us to you. Uh, Also, if you've got the Bible on your phone, you can use your phone. We'll just assume if you have your phone out that you're reading the Bible. That's what I always do, at least. So uh, grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 12. If you need to use the table of contents in the front of the Bible, there's no shame in that. I use it all the time. So as we're turning, what I want, uh, what I want to just, I just want to give this little disclaimer. Since we're talking about family and the church, how we're supposed to be like family, uh, let me just say this. I know that no family is perfect, but I also know that some families are better than others. And so maybe you've had an experience with family that is not good. And when you hear the word family, you have a terrible image in your head. What I want to say is that that longing or that recognition that your family is not good should not be something that keeps you away from family. It should project uh, and propel you to look for family elsewhere. And I think the great news tonight is that there's family elsewhere. So if you've had a very bad experience with family, just know that that's not the way that it should be. But there's hope. There's hope. So, Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 46. While he, that's Jesus, was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we're coming to your word and we're, uh, we're trusting that you've got something to say to us tonight, something to say to us as a community. We pray that you would just open our eyes and our ears to hear from you. We pray that you would um, enlighten us, that we would come to know what it means to be a part of the church, what it means to be 
uh, the heavenly body of Christ living here in Seattle. Uh, We pray that sincerely. We want to know. Help us to know. I just pray that uh, you would give me your words and anything that's not of you, that you would uh, let it pass through the ears of, of all my brothers and sisters here. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, take a look. Take a look here at what Jesus is saying. It's pretty revolutionary um, because even more so than today, family was a big thing in Jesus' day. Okay? Family was everything that you had. And so the scene is, is this. Jesus, and, and this happened everywhere he went, he gathered a large crowd. People uh, would come to hear him. Why? Because he was doing all sorts of things that nobody else was doing. And he spoke with a kind of authority that people said, I got, I got to hear what Jesus has got to say. And so the scene here is he's probably in some, someone else's house and it's packed out. I mean, there's barely room to move. And he's teaching the people. And uh, his mother and his brothers show up and they want to speak to Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly why they wanted to speak to him. Uh, they might have been trying to, like, save him from himself. Save him from himself. Uh, why is that? Because they didn't actually know who he was. In fact, there's other places where we read about, they thought he might have been out of his mind. Well, yeah, he's claiming to be God. He's predicting his own death and his resurrection. So you could imagine, if you grew up with this kid and he starts saying that, you're a little bit scared. You've got to protect him from himself. And so they're trying to get in, and they can't get in, so they send somebody up, you know. There's always that one guy in the crowd who's just, like, really good at getting through the crowd, you know. He's, like, the guy you want to take to a concert with you, and somehow he ends up in the front, and he's just like, I made it, guys, follow me, just right through there. And you're like, no way. <laughs> you're like 110 pounds. Look at me. I can't, I can't do it. So they send this guy up, and, and he comes to Jesus, and he's like, Uh, your mom and your brothers are here. And then Jesus says this, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now he hasn't forgotten. He knows what's being asked of him. But he's changing the game. And he stretches out his hand towards his disciples and he says, here are my mother and my brother. Whoever does the will of the Father is my brother and sister and mother. Now it's interesting how he says that at the end uh, because no one said that his sisters were there. He probably did have sisters. But what he's saying is, no, these disciples, this is my whole family. This is my whole family. He leaves out father, of course, because that role is filled by our heavenly father. But he says, it's Heavenly Father and then my disciples. My disciples. This is wild stuff. Jesus is changing the definition of family. And he's doing it to be purposefully shocking. It's not that Jesus didn't love his mother and his brothers. He loved them very much. In fact, at the end of Jesus' life, He's hanging on the cross, and he tells John, one of his disciples, hey, take care of my mother. Treat her like your own mother. So he loved them very much. He cared for them very much. But he's saying, wait a minute. The game has changed. Family is not just biological. There's something else. 
There's something actually more important. And what does he say? He says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So how do we know if we're a part of Jesus' family? Well, we know it because we care about the same things that the family cares about. And who sets the agenda for the family? The Father who's in heaven. So Jesus says, those people that do what my Father asks them to do, those are my siblings. This is wild stuff. Those are my siblings. Here's kind of how, how I uh, process that. He's saying, listen, there's a way that our family does stuff. It's the family way. You probably in your own family have a family way, right? You think about Christmas. Well, that's the way you do. When you get married, this will uh, happen to you. Be like, that's not how you do Christmas. Let me show you how to do Christmas. This is what we eat on Christmas. This is how we cook the mashed potatoes. Uh, what? No green beans on Christmas? That's not the family way. That's what Jesus is saying. There's a family way. There's a thing that we care about as a family, and the people that are caring about it in the same way that I'm caring about it, those are my brothers and my sisters. That's my mother. That's my family. Now look at this. Look at this. Verse 50. Who can be in the family? Surely you've got to have some credentials, right? No. Whoever does the will of my Father. That's the great thing about this family that Jesus is speaking of. Anybody can get into the family as long as they do it the family way. You can't be a part of the family if you don't do it the family way. But whoever, and the construction here in the original language is emphasis, whoever does the will of my Father can be a part of our family. This is revolutionary stuff. This is revolutionary stuff. Elsewhere, what we see is Jesus saying even some more striking things. For instance, in Matthew 10, he says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Wow. That's hard to hear, isn't it? Why does Jesus say those things? He's saying that family is not what you thought it was. Let me press pause. Jesus is not here saying we should abandon our family and we shouldn't care for them. He's being provocative for a reason. Elsewhere we know that, yeah, for the Christian, being a good family man or family woman is so important. 1 Timothy 5.8 says this, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So being... And caring for your family, your biological family, is important to Jesus and it's important to the Christian. But Jesus is saying, and he's being provocative for a reason, he's saying, guys, there's something actually more foundational to being in the family than even your biology or those people you happen to live with. He's not saying to abandon, but what he's saying is that biological family ties 
are not all important. They're important, but not all important. There's something actually more all important, and that is being in the family of God. So you could say it this way. Human kinship does not take priority over spiritual kinship. That's what Jesus is laying out. That's the new view of the world that he's laying out. Spiritual kinship is more important than human kinship. Man, that's wild. And that's hard, probably, to hear. But here's what's great about it. That means that Jesus is our brother. Jesus is our brother. Hebrews 2 says this, For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters of Jesus. That's exciting if you like Jesus. It's not that exciting if you don't. I wouldn't want to be in a family with Jesus if I didn't like him very much. That dude can dominate a conversation. I'll tell you what. Here's uh, something else Jesus is saying. Yeah, we're brothers and we're sisters, and we all get to actually live and participate in the household of God. Ephesians 2 says this, And he came, that's Jesus, and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's great news. If you want to be a part of the household of God. So how does this happen? How do we go from being born into this human family to being a part of the household of God to being brothers and sisters with Jesus? How does this happen? Well, what I love is right after the verse, or right after the verse I just read comes Ephesians 3, and Paul says this. Uh, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Why do I love that? Because Paul admits it's a mystery that we only know through the revelation of God. That's why we believe and we teach from the Bible, because there are things that we cannot know just by observing. But once we experience them, then this kicks in and we say, yeah, I feel like I'm a family member of God. I've experienced that. I felt like the family member of God. So it's a mystery, and here's how it works. Adoption. We are adopted into the family of God. Romans 8.15 says this, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is like saying Dad. So we were once slaves and we've been adopted and now we're sons and daughters of God. This is amazing stuff. 
To be a part of the body of Christ is to be a part of the family of God. And we're adopted in. And here's how adoption works. You don't usually get to pick who adopts you, do you? They come after you and they adopt you. So we had nothing to do with this. We were slaves. We were far from God. We were enemies of God. And he came and he adopted us. And he said, you know what? I want you to be a part of the family. Come on in. Come on in. Come into the family. I want you to be a part of the family. I know you've been a slave your whole life. Come on in. I want you to sit with us, eat with us, be a part of our family. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Now, how do we get connected as family members? This family is not based on the color of your skin or the pigment in your eyes, your height, your weight, your hair color, the shape of your nose. It's not the language you speak or the seal on your passport. It's not even your genetic code which is running through your veins. That has nothing to do with this family. The family of God, in the family of God, the only blood that matters is the blood of Jesus. It is His blood that was spilled out for us in sacrifice, and it's His blood that unites us as a family. Jesus is the linchpin that holds this family together. And so if you're connected to Jesus, you're connected to His family. I lived in Dallas for a couple years, four to be exact, and weird things happen uh, with connections, right? Uh, you meet somebody, like especially when you're living, uh, not a ton of people from Seattle living in, in Dallas, but you meet somebody, somebody from Seattle and, and you find it out and it's like your eyes light up and you're like, oh my gosh, and you're like, this is like my new best friend, you know everything about Seattle, have you been to Starbucks? It's so good. <laughs> you ever had that experience? you just meet somebody somewhere else and you have this like weird really unimportant connection but when you find it out you're just like we are like best friends and you know nothing else about this person you guys are like holding hands down the street and you're like we're from Seattle you know now it even gets worse when you meet somebody from Seattle who also went to your alma mater you'd be like you meet a UW student I went to UW it's like you went to UW UW you know I'd be like, no, I was talking about University of Wisconsin. I was like, that's not you, Dove. <laughs> you ever had that experience? And then, like, you know you're going to see him, and so you always wear, like, your UW gear. You're like, oh, I, I wear this, like, all the time. But we have this weird thing where we have these weird connections that make us, like, so tight all of a sudden when we know nothing about the people. Now, imagine this. Imagine that you meet somebody who also believes that Jesus Christ is their Savior that spilled his blood for you, and you meet this person, what do you think should happen? It's more than a handhold, it's a hug, right? I mean, it's like, we experience life in the same way. We have the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the kind of connection that should be happening. But it's actually even something more than like this shared uh, understanding or cognitive reality. It's something even deeper. Bonhoeffer says this. First, Christian brotherhood and sisterhood is not an ideal, but a divine reality. Second, Christian brotherhood and sisterhood 
is a spiritual and not a psychic reality. What does he mean here? He's saying it's not only that we, when we meet other Christians that uh, we say, oh, we believe the same thing cognitively. It's that we have experienced an actual divine reality. We've been given new spiritual life, rebirth. We talked about that last week. And we're actually objectively changed. That's what happens when we're adopted. And so when we meet somebody, there's a connection. And what's that connection like? It should be like family. It's like I just, I was backpacking in Europe and I just ran into my sister. Are you kidding me? I didn't even know you were on vacation. Sister, so good to see you. That's what should be happening to us because we're in the family of God. That's a powerful, a powerful thing. And I hope that we can experience it here at this church that when we see each other, you know, say we're down at Pike Place Market and we run into somebody from our family here and we see them, that emotion should stir in us like we've just seen a brother or a sister that we haven't seen in a while. And we should be like, oh, so good to see you. Your face should light up because you've seen a family member. Man, if that's true, if that's the kind of community that we cultivate, this will be a different kind of community. People will see this and they'll say, what is up with your community? There is something special about it. There's some serious connections that are happening here. I've never really seen a community like that. My PTA group is not like that. <laughs> we do not get along very well. That's the church. It's a different kind of community. So here we go. Human kinship does not take priority over spiritual kinship. To be honest, I never experienced this until I was in Denver, while I was in seminary, and I became a part of a church called Fellowship Denver Church. And the only reason I think I experienced it because I dove in and I joined a fellowship group. I helped lead a fellowship group. We stole the name from them. That's why we use it. And I experienced it for the first time. And I experienced that church is not just a sermon. Church is not just good music. Church is not just good friendship even, but church is a family. Church is a family. And when you experience church in this way as a family, you know what should happen if you have to move away, if God calls you back to Seattle to plant a church? You know what you should do when you're leaving your family? You should, you should weep. Tears should come down your face. And I still remember sitting in my last service at Fellowship Denver Church and tears running down my face as we worshiped because I knew I was leaving my family. Now I knew that God had called me away from, my fam from that family to start a new family, but tears, because I thought of that church not just as a sermon. You don't cry for sermons. You don't cry for good music. You cry for family. That's how I want us to experience life together, like family. That's why Jesus makes such a dramatic point, because he wants us to experience life together as family. He didn't die on the cross for a good sermon or a good event or a feel-good moment. He died on the cross for his family. He shed his blood for his family. And that's why he says, anyone who does the will of the Father can be a part of my family if they place their trust in me and they become my disciple. The church isn't, it's, it's just not uh, what you write on your name tag when you go to a conference. I go to church. No, a church is a family and it's full of disciples of Jesus Christ. 
So here's the good news about families. If you're a member of the family, you're an heir of the inheritance of the family. And Jesus Christ has won us a great inheritance as our big brother, and we get to participate in that inheritance. Here's the hard truth about family. Here's the thing. You don't always like your brothers and sisters. In fact, if you just had to pick your group of friends that you'd hang out with, you probably wouldn't invite your brother and sister to hang out. But you know what? They're your family. You can't get rid of them. And so you come into a church like this, and there's going to be people that you say, well, I wouldn't hang out with them just on my own. I say, too bad, you're part of the family. And you commit to the family. And that's what I love about, man, there are some weird folks in this family here. And I am one of them. Man, I am weird. What am I doing? But, hey, we're in this together. We're brothers and sisters. That's, that's a hard truth about family. But it's the beauty of family as well. the beauty of family now here's the deal families take great responsibility to be a part of a family if you don't have a great sense of responsibility you're not cut out for family life families commit to sacrificing for one another families commit to sharing all things with one another families commit to encourage one another families commit to say the hard things when hard things need to be said and we'll do that in this family And if I'm not saying the hard things, if you're not saying the hard things to one another, then you're not being a good brother or sister. If your sister walks up to you, your little sister, and she hadn't figured out that you don't wear, you know, black shoes with a brown belt, and you send her off, you know, on the first day of school, you're not being a good brother or sister. You tell her, you say, take those shoes off right now. I mean, if you've got to go barefoot, you don't, you don't, you don't do that. You don't do that. You don't do that. Your makeup, that does not look good. Take that off. You are not wearing that skirt on your first date with a boy. That's Big Brother Dave coming out. I have a little sister. I love to be a big brother. Here's the other thing. You have the responsibility, if you're part of a family, to mature. You cannot be perpetually the little brother or little sister. You have a responsibility to mature and to grow. You can't just say, oh, I'm the baby of the family. I was the last to join. I get to always be the last. That's not how it works. You have a a responsibility to grow. I have all these funny jokes that I don't have time for. I got my laugh. That's all I needed. Okay. Here's, let me just say this real quick. This is so important. Maturity is not carbon dated. Here's what I mean. Just because you're older than somebody in this family, age-wise, does not mean you're more mature. So we've got some young folks in our family. The youngest folks might be the most mature folks. And you need to humble yourself if you're older and say, I can, I can learn something from you. You are mature beyond your years, and you celebrate that. There are some folks in here, and I've met them, and I've learned from them, that are much younger than me, that have great maturity. Maturity is not carbon dated. And if you start acting like that, I'm going to slap you upside the head. Here's the other thing. Don't be a Benjamin Button. Don't start your spiritual journey at this great place of age, and then as you go, you just get younger and younger and younger, and by the end, you're the baby of the family. No, if you're, if you're mature now, you should be way more mature in a year. Don't be a Benjamin Button. Okay, here's the other thing. Birth order in this family 
doesn't mean nothing. Just because you were here first doesn't mean you automatically get leadership. Maturity earns leadership. So maybe tonight's your first night with us. We're so glad you're here. That doesn't mean you're at the back of the bus. This ain't Seattle Children's Hospital where you got to wait your turn to get on day shift. Where's my wife? (laughs) That's not how it works. If you're the best, you go right to day shift. That's the way I say Any managers here from Seattle Children? Let's talk after. I'll be over here in the corner. Birth order does not, uh, does not determine leadership. So we want to be mature, and we look to big brother Jesus, and we say, that's how we do it. He teaches us how to be mature. Now, I've got to get to this final thing. I'm, so, I'm, I'm, I'm over time again. I'm, I apologize. I'm working on it. Like I said, we're all maturing and growing. But i got to get to this because this is my favorite part. As I've been thinking about what does it mean to be a family as the church, what does it mean to be like a family, I can't help thinking about the dinner table. A family dinner table, that's the place that family happens, right? I love family dinner tables. I'm married into a great family who has a great family dinner table. I love having dinner with my family there. And the the family of God's no different. It's like a dinner table. I had this friend uh, growing up named Lindsay Cornell. I don't know if you guys did this in your family, but they like didn't care that people were, you know, burning into their table. So they had like a wood burner and you'd write your name in the table. Have you ever had that? You ever done that? So it's like if you come over for dinner, you write your name in the table. I really want to do that. I don't think my wife's going to let me do that. (laughs) Maybe I have like my own table in a different room and we'll do that. But I, lo- I love that idea because it's like, yeah, I was a part of this family dinner table. And the great thing is, is that actually as a part of the family of God, the dinner table of God already has your name written in it. And he's just waiting for you. He's like, I already wrote your name. I got that spot saved for you, sir, the chair. I'm not giving that to anybody else. I've got your name written in it. Come on to the table. Come on to the table. Be a part of the family. That's the way God works. He says, I want you to be a part of the family dinner table. Look at what Jesus said. And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and look at this, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some who are first will be last. I love that. That's the picture of the table. That's the picture of the table. It's the picture of the table of God as we come together. I mean, just picture this giant table filled with the people of God, and we're coming together to share a meal. And you know at a table, like, there's, like, different parts of the table. You probably know this if you have a big family. Like, you got to make sure where you sit because, like, I mean, it's all the family, but it's like you don't want to sit next to those people because that's that's not your jam. So you kind of sit next to these people, and they're, like, the fun people or whatever. Or if you're, like, the really smart people, you want to come over, sit over here with these people. There's all the PhDs hanging out over here at this part of the table. I think, like, the church global is kind of like that. Like, we're a little part of the table, and, you know, we, we hang out together. That's okay. That doesn't mean that though, that church over there is not part of the family. It just means, like, the way they talk about stuff, that's not really that fun on Thanksgiving. We just sit over here or kind of, like, like, I still hang out at the kids' table sometimes. I love the kids' table. Kids' table is always the best conversation. I'm not saying we're like the kids' table. I'm just saying if we were, it'd be kind of a cool place to be. And so we have this picture of the table, the table, the family table of God, and we get to Revelation chapter 19, okay? Get to Revelation chapter 19, uh, and God paints for us this picture of a great feast that's coming. 
and he calls it the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he says there's a coming a day when Jesus Christ is coming back. He's the groom, and he's going to come back, and we're going to have a great feast at the table, and we're going to celebrate together as a family. And here's what I love about this, this picture uh, of the family table and this wedding. That's fun. Weddings are fun. We get to be a part of that. And as I was thinking about weddings, I was thinking, well, what makes a wedding really great? Like, you have like a mediocre wedding? That's okay. What makes a wedding great? And I was thinking about it. Well, first you've got to have like, you know, great people at the wedding. That's important. But then what you really got to have is a great father of the bride, you know. Just a great father of the bride. He knows how to throw a great party. You've got to have that. You've got to have that. You know what else you have to have? You have to have a great bride. You've got to have a beautiful bride. Uh, but here's the thing. I've never met a bride who wasn't beautiful and worthy of a great day. So what's... What's the kicker? What's the one thing that turns a mediocre wedding into a great wedding or a good wedding into a fantastic wedding? What is it? It's the groom. And I was thinking about this. I'm not, I'm not trying to be sexist here. <laughs> it is the groom. Why is that? Think about the toast. Think about the toast. Well, the toasts are coming. Oh, this could be either great or it could be terrible. What always makes the difference? Listen, the dad's going to say something. Everybody's going to cry. That's going to happen. The maid of honor is going to get up and she's going to say something wonderful about the bride. And it's going to be sweet and everybody's going to go, oh, and it's going to be clapping. Everything's good. But what makes or break the toast is always the best man's speech. Right? If the best man's speech is good, man, those, those are good toasts. Those are good toasts. If the best man's speech is bad, ooh, that's the guy? That's the best of the, of the five groomsmen? That's the best one we could get? And what's that say about all the people who didn't even make the roster, you know? Like, all the other dudes that are out there. We got five dudes out of that group, and then we pick one, and he gets the one that gets a talk. And that's what he said? Some terrible jokes? Well, that reflects back on the groom. So I'm not saying the bride is so important, the father of the bride is so important, uh, the people are so important, but if you got a terrible groom, the wedding's gonna stink. That's kind of my own opinion, Okay. But here's the great thing. I'm going to pull it together. Here's the great thing. At this wedding that Revelation uh, uh, paints for us, the banquet's going to be fantastic. Why? Because the groom is none other than Jesus Christ himself. You can't, get, can't be a better groom than that. He's the Lord, the Savior, the Redeemer of the world, and he's the one that comes in, and he's the groom at the wedding. And we are the bride, his, uh, the church, with the bride of Christ. And you know what? The father of the bride, dude knows how to throw an amazing party. Yeah, he actually created everything, the world. You don't think he's going to have the best wine, the best food? But the best part about it is the people, because they all know the groom. And the people that know a good groom are usually cool people. And that wedding is going to just be <laughs> off the charts. I want to be at that wedding. I want to invite people to that wedding. I want to be a part of that family. And here's the deal. The guest list is so big, all you can do is invite family. You can't get on the list unless you're family. You know how that works. Then you start writing your guest list and you say, i got to get rid of that guy. Played pickleball with him as a kid. I can't have him on the list. Family's the only one that gets into this party. But Jesus says, whoever does the will of the Father can be family and get on that guest list and be a part of the greatest wedding feast ever. 
That's good news. That's the wedding I want to be at. That's the table I want to celebrate with. We want to be a part of the family of God. Are you with me? Do you want to be a part of the family of God? That's what I want for our church. That's my hope. As we try to live up to the name Sedaris, as we try to be the heavenly body of Christ, as we try to be the kind of people who think not of our earthly self, but of the self to come, as we do all this and we try to shine like the stars, as we try to live up to this name, we're only going to be able to do it if we act like family. So let's be family. Let's be family. We're going forward. Let's build this family. Let's be family. And I think when people see this family, what they're going to say is that, I want to be a part of that. There's something different about it. The way you love each other, the way you're connected to one another, the way you die for one another, the way you hug each other when you see each other in the street. How do you know that guy? He's part of my family. Go to church with him. Really? Church? You guys hug at church? Yeah, we hug at church all the time, especially after communion. And then they're going to say, oh, I heard you guys were throwing a wedding. And they're say, like, if that family's throwing a wedding, I want to be at that party. You have those families in your life, those families that you know, as soon as their kids get married, that's going to be a great wedding. You know, you know what I'm talking about. They, you just know the wedding's going to be good. That's what I hope people say when they think about our family and the wedding of the groom, Jesus Christ. Okay. Let's pray. Hey, Father, we thank you so much that we get to be a part of your family, that uh, we don't just get to come to these events that you happen uh, to sponsor, but that we actually get to be a part of your family, that we get to call uh, your son, Jesus Christ, our brother, that we get to be brothers and sisters, not only with him, but with each other. Lord, this is a privilege that we give away too easily. We don't grab hold of it. We've maybe never experienced it. Lord, my hope is that as a church, as we're just now getting started, as we're just now figuring out what it means to be the church, that we would think of ourselves as a family. That we wouldn't neglect our human family, but that we would see this new family that you're inviting us and calling us and leading us into as even more important than our biological family. Lord, my prayer is that uh, when that idea hits our ears, that we don't cringe or run from it, but that we step fully into it and we start living as the family of God. That Sedaris would be our name and that we would live up to that name and that we would become the kind of community that people look at and say, wow, there's something different there. What is it? They love each other like their family. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I could just sit. I could just.